As they are heading, uh, heading down, I'm going to invite you to take your Bibles and open them to Genesis. Go to the book of Genesis, Genesis chapter 16. Today marks the first day of our Advent messages. Advent means coming. And so the Advent season is that season in which we anticipate, we prepare for the coming of the birth of Jesus. We're going to step out of our study through the book of Colossians. And we'll spend these next uh, four Advent Sundays preparing our hearts to receive the birth of our Savior. Now, on Colossians, I want you to know, you know, we just finished, we only got into the first part of chapter two. We're going to pick up Colossians, the first part of January, and it will take us all the way through Palm Sunday. So we'll, we'll, be, we'll finish it right at Palm Sunday. I'm looking forward to stepping back into that. Um, we're going to follow the theme of our Christmas outreach, uh, Nowhere Town. That's going to guide our four Advent messages. Uh, we're going to examine the biblical significance of nowhere places and nobody people. And that's really what that concert will be about. It's always been God's way, if you, if you will, when we read our Bibles to... Uh, show up in places and to reveal himself to people the world thinks nothing of. When we think about the birth of Christ described in scripture, you, you know this. He came uh, to a people who were struggling. Not a great people. Honestly, a people no one thought about. A people, quite frankly, in Jesus' day, the Jews who were struggling, who were living under oppression, and who no one saw as significant. I want you to fast forward to our day, 2,000 years later. So let's just take our context where, where we are today. You know, the, uh, I, know, I know it's Lindsay's you know, favorite time of the year, as it is for many of us in, in, a, in a sweet way. You know, the songs tell us it's the, it's, it's the season to be jolly. When do we ever use that word? You know, it's the word time, you get to use jolly throughout this time, and it's the most wonderful time of the year. Now, we would be less than honest, okay, if we did not also acknowledge that for some, not, and not all, but I, I would say all to some measure or degree, um, we have just entered what is, in fact, some of the most difficult days of the year. Some of the hardest. Melissa Fenton writes for a, a, a website called Scary Mommy. And she said, sheds light on uh, these days. She had a conversation with her mother years ago, and I quote her. She said, I asked my mom why a Christmas carol would make her cry. And her answer forever changed the way that I feel about the holidays. She said, this time of year is the worst time of the year for some people, for many people. They are missing loved ones, kids, or parents. They can't afford gifts for their kids. They may have had a tragedy in their life, and another holiday without that loved one can be unbearable. Some people won't make it home for Christmas ever again. And for many they just want it all to be over because it's just too painful to be forced to be joyful when their every day is a struggle, end quote. 
last week at the Thanksgiving services, which were so sweet and amazing as our elders led us, the worship team led us. And many of you, if you'll recall, we were sitting in the round and had an opportunity to express your gratitude and thanks. And what I appreciated so much about what was shared is that um, what, what was, when you shared your gratitude, you did not share that gratitude absent some of the losses and the hardship and the deaths and the broken relationships and the financial struggles and the health setbacks and the family dysfunction. No, the gratitude rose out of, that's reality, and it rose out of those realities. Um, I, I, I caught this from a therapist and it, she makes a statement and, and, and it just made me smile. Speaking of these days when we need to readjust expectations, she said, I think adjusting one's expectations for one's family is a really important thing. Talking about you know Thanksgiving, Christmas, and these days. I have clients who want this concept of a Norman Rockwell family. And it's hard to find those real Norman Rockwell families. People have them, but they're only in paintings. End quote. <laughs> Amen. Uh, I want you to know, I'm not the Grinch who stole Christmas. So I'm not stealing Christmas as it begins, okay? We're, we're not there. But we start here. Why? Because when all the lights are taken down, and you know, we put the trees back up, and all the glitter and the wrapping paper goes away, and the radio, you know, we're about, by, by, you know, by January, you're, we're, we're so ready for that Christmas station to be off, you know, quit playing all the Christmas songs. Um, the profound realities of life, of life in a broken body and a broken world, those things remain, you all. You, you can't put those away. Like, I'm gonna put those away too so I don't have to deal with them. No, those remain in what you and I need always and every day is a genuine relationship with the one whom we celebrate on December 25th and that is Jesus, the son of God. And we will experience that relationship in its fullness and depth, I want to suggest, not by wishing or imagining a Norman Rockwell family, but the family we got and the people we have and the circumstances as God is working them out in our lives. In other words, we're gonna, we're gonna experience the fullness of the holidays and of, the, of Jesus by engaging and acknowledging we're no different from these people in our Bibles. Nobody people in nowhere places struggling to walk with God. Genesis 16. I know it's kind of like, well, where's the Christmas story here? Well, it's here. Uh, it's not beautifully wrapped, but it is incredibly hopeful. So in your Bibles, Genesis 16, I need to give us a little bit of a ramp up to it because I want you to have the context before we look at the passage itself, the chapter. So let me do this quickly. Genesis, we have to go back to Genesis 12 to get the context for uh, chapter 16. In Genesis 12, uh, God makes a promise to a man named 
Abraham, Abram at the time. He makes a promise to Abram and he promises Abram, I'm gonna say Abraham, he promises Abraham that uh, he is gonna have a land, that he is, gonna, he is gonna be the father of a nation and that through him the whole world will be blessed. It's called the Abrahamic covenant, okay? It's, or think of an Abrahamic promise. And it's not an exaggeration to say that from, that's Genesis 12, one to three, that from that point all the way to the end of the Bible is quite simply the story of God delivering on his promise to Abraham. That, that's the whole rest of the Bible. That's Genesis 12. And then you gotta go to Genesis 15 because something important happens here where God ratifies, you know, puts his signature, so to speak, on the promise on the covenant. And in Genesis 15, it's a, it's a crazy story. We studied it when we were in Genesis. But uh, the, the covenant, the Abrahamic covenant, is ratified between God and Abraham. And when they would ratify covenants in this, those days, okay, Old Testament days, this is not just Jewish people. This was culturally was, uh, uh, pretty much across the board. They, they, would, uh, they would cut animals in two, which Abraham gets a cow, a goat, and a ram. He's got some birds. He doesn't cut those in two, but he, they, he cuts those animals in two, i.e. they're dead. He cuts them in two. And so you got this, like, this path in front of me. It would be like half the cow on this side, half on this side, half the ram on this side, half on this side, half the goat on this side. And what you have is these dead animals, and you got a pathway covered in blood in the middle. And what they would do, whether it was a nation or a family clan covenanting with another, hey, we're not, gonna, we're not gonna bother you, you're not gonna bother us, you know, we're gonna give our daughters to you and you're gonna give our sons, whatever that covenant is, the two parties would walk that path of blood. And that signified my commitment to fulfill my part of this covenant and should I fail to do so, may I be as dead as these animals. It's extremely serious and binding. Now what's fascinating about the Abrahamic covenant though is that Abraham was asleep and only God passed through the animals. And this is, this is very, very important. And it signifies this. God obligates himself to bring this promise to pass. God obligates himself to make sure this promise comes to be. And so it's tied not ultimately, and hear me very carefully on this, it's ultimately not tied to Abraham's faithfulness, but to God's. God was saying in essence, um, I would have to perish for this not to happen. And God will never perish. He is immortal, eternal. I don't want us to forget this because this is important in our text and quite frankly in life right now. Our ultimate confidence and sure hope is not our faithfulness. It's God's. Some of you may struggle with this. I'm gonna say it again. Our ultimate certainty and hope is not our faithfulness. It's God's faithfulness. And when that 
awakens in our minds, I'm telling you, your life of faith is transformed because you realize it's all of grace. It's all of grace. God is faithful. And by the way, can I say this? That when, when, when that dawns upon you, that doesn't, uh, and Paul addresses this later, but that doesn't make you go, well, good, then I can go live like I want. That is so crazy and so contrary. No, when grace awakens in your heart, you go, God is gonna be faithful to me. And yes, I wanna respond in faith to him. It matters, my faithfulness. But it's ultimately God is my hope because God is faithful. Oh my, you talk about the chains falling off and living free in the gospel of grace. That all, that's all right here in our Old Testament. Now, that chapter 15 has laid this fundamental principle down. Life with God is to live by promise. Life with God means we live by promise. What do you mean we live by promise? It means this, life with God is a continual belief that God keeps his promises. That's how we live life. That's the basis of life. The basis of life is not my circumstances. The basis of life is not what I do. The base of, well, the basis of life is God made promises. I believe he keeps them. God made pro I believe he keeps his promise. I believe he keeps his promise. That's the fundamental track, if you will, of the Christian life, a life lived by promises of God. Now we're ready for chapter 16. I'm only gonna read the first verse at first because I wanna comment on it, then I'll pick up the rest. Genesis chapter 16, verse one. Now Sarai... Abram's wife, again, he's not yet changed their names to Sarah and Abraham. Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. Now, why I want to stop there is I want you to feel something, and that's this. You could not write a darker, more despairing, more hopeless sentence than the first sentence of chapter 16, verse one. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. You see, Sarai knows that, the, that God has promised Abraham to be a nation, and yet she can't conceive. She's infertile. In those days, infertility carried a cultural stigma, a spiritual stigma that was palpable. And even in our day, there are many of you in this room who have struggled with infertility, are struggling with infertility. And it is a pain, quite frankly, like no other. It's, it's honestly at some level, inconsolable. It's hard even to put it for a, a woman, and, and, and it can be a man, I think in, in a woman's case, even harder, quite frankly, having, having struggled ourselves, Lisa and I, with infertility, but for the, for, for the wife to even put into words the sense of isolation, defect, what, uh, loneliness, and I'm, I'm, I'm saying this so that we understand with the first sentence, we all know something's not right. 
That's just a big exclamation mark. Things are not as they should be. And then the story unwinds. I want you to read verses two through six with me. I'll just make a few comments. And Sarai said to Abram, behold now, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened, Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. So after Abram had lived 10 years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar, the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. And he went into Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. And Sarai said to Abram, may the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my servant to your embrace and when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. But Abram said to Sarai, behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. Then Sarai dealt harshly with her and she fled from her. I'm gonna make a few comments and I'm gonna summarize this section because our focus is gonna be on the last part of the chapter. And uh, I can't unpack all this, y'all, so I'll just offer some thoughts that you can look up at another time. But do you notice some of the wording in this text? And I'm just gonna cut to the chase. It is a replay of the Garden of Eden. Nowhere in your Bibles are you gonna find these two verbs, took and gave, other than Genesis 3 and Genesis 16. She took and gave the fruit. And you notice it's the same language. So Sarah took and gave to Abraham. Nowhere will you find this phrase, this statement, Abram listened to his wife, Sarah. What does Genesis 3 say? In the curse, God says, because you listened to Eve. And all of that reinforces, this is a low watermark in the life of the patriarch. Now, here's just a few a summary statement here. 10 years of infertility. I, I can't imagine what that produces for any woman, any couple, family. Um, how's, my, how's my husband gonna be? You know, think about what she's carrying. How's my husband gonna be the father of a nation if I can't bear children? 120 months of that. In that day, it was, a, it was accepted that you could give a maidservant to your husband so that she could bear children for you. They would be counted as yours. So we kind of look at this and go, man, that is weird. That's out of whack. And you know what? It is weird. It's out of whack. But I want to tell you something. Since the fall of humanity, God's design has always been thwarted and whacked out and changed and adapted by us. So yes, it's not God's ultimate design, but certainly accepted in this day. What's happening to Abram and Sarai, if I could say this, is exactly what happens to me. And I want to think it probably happens to most of us. We have a promise from God. But then we run into real life. And the promise, it ain't, it ain't happening. It's, it, wait, I thought you promised, but this is not what's happening in my life. I don't think there's a person in the room. I don't think there's a person online watching right now who is not at some, in some way waiting, and I'll say this, struggling with the promise of God. Struggling whether it be, you know, God, you said you'd provide, and you know, the provision's not there. 
struggling in that, you know, that grand scheme of things, God causes all things to work together for good and you're facing something in life right now that is far from good. It's, that promise can't be true because my life is this. Do you see that? We're all struggling at some level. Remember what I said the fundamental principle of the Christian life is? To be a person who lives by promise? There's a problem. I have my life and my life is not matching the promise. And what do we do when, our lot, when, our, when the promise of God runs into the hardships of life? You know, I don't know about you, but more times than not, I would, I go to work. I'm gonna figure out how to make this promise come true. Not, not everyone does, but we, we try and figure out how to make the promise true because God's not delivering on the promise. If I could narrow that, I would say this. Uh, we go to control. Just think about your life, right? Where are you, where are you going to, con- where are we going to control right now? Because living by the promise is way too hard. And so we go to control. Now I'm gonna be totally blunt on this last one and I know it's true of me. So I'm speaking about myself, but it may be you as well. We start scheming. See, we don't like that word, but I can't be the only schemer in the room. But we start scheming. I'll, work, I'll figure it out. I think Abraham and Sarah do exactly what we do. They're faced right now. You know, God, you promised this. It's been 10 years. It's gonna be a lot longer, quite frankly. And it ain't happening, so we'll do it, right? Now, Galatians has a lot to say about this. Just put that in the back of your mind. But they will figure it out. It's just what what Adam and Eve did. Trust me, you'll have all the provision you need. Uh, I think we're gonna do it our own way. And it's just what we do. In that lines, I might make this note. The opposite of faith is not unbelief. I don't think it's, we go to, I, I don't believe, I don't believe. I think it's more this. The opposite of faith is not unbelief, it's control. The opposite of faith is not unbelief, I don't believe. The opposite of faith is I'm gonna control it and I'll bring it about. Well, she carries this child, Hagar. Uh, It creates conflict between her and Sarai. She has mistreated you all. Harshly is the same word used of how the Egyptians treat the Jews. Now, again, this is a bunny trail, but I'll just say, you know, go, go read about this, but note what's happening here. A Jewish family is mistreating an Egyptian. Fast forward 400 years. The Egyptians are oppressing the Jews. She flees to the wilderness. Where do the Jews go? This is the kind of stuff as Rob always, I catch Rob saying when I watch him online, he'll say, man, I'm just geeking out about that. And I go, you know, I kind of do too on certain things. And so I just go, oh my goodness, yes. Prefiguring that story. Look at seven through 16. Follow along in your Bibles as I read it. The angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. And he said to Hagar, servant, and he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, Where have you come from and where are you going? She said, I am fleeing from my mistress, Sarai. The angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit to her. The angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. He promises her a nation. 
or a people, a, a, a numberless people. And the angel of the Lord said to her, behold, you are pregnant and shall bear a son. She had no idea she was carrying a son. You shall call his name Ishmael because the Lord has listened to your affliction. He shall be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone and everyone's hand against him. He shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. So she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her. This is, she names God and says, you are God of seeing. For she said, truly here I have seen him who looks after me. Therefore the well that she was by was called Behir Lahai Roi. It lies between Kadesh and Bered. And Hagar bore Abram a son. And Abram called the name of his son whom Hagar bore Ishmael. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. Now, with that, I'm gonna, I'm gonna give us just some bullet points of observation. And I'm gonna move quickly to five um, truths about God, about faith, that I want us to ponder and consider from the text. Uh, first of all, I want you to know this is the first mention of the angel of the Lord. First time in the Bible, the angel of the Lord is mentioned. But I also want you to note, it's the first time, it's the second time, it's the third time, it's the fourth time. Four times Moses records, the angel of the Lord. And by the way, is this not interesting? I'm, I'm gonna go off on all these weird tangents. I gotta be careful, but you know, he appears to a woman post-resurrection, who does Jesus appear to first? To the women. Now, the angel of the Lord is uh, understood and when he shows up in the Old Testament that he, you'll note even in this passage, she refers to the angel of the Lord as God and he speaks as God. And therefore, theologians have always understood the angel of the Lord uh, to, be, to, to, be a, to be God, an expression of God, a, 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 you know, a, a um, God showing up in this way. We'll go a step further because from the early church, the early church has understood that the angel of the Lord is not just any angel, okay? But he is the pre-incarnate Jesus. Before the cross, you know, that's got time before the cross ever comes and, and, and the birth of Jesus, we're anticipating, uh, that Jesus does show up in our Old Testament. He shows up in the pre-incarnate ways and one is as the angel of the Lord, now, sure is, uh, you know, if this is Sinai and Egypt or Israel's up here, that's up here in the northeast corner of, of Sinai. It's like this. So she's on her way to Egypt. She's going home. And who wouldn't uh, after the way she has been treated? She's pregnant, alone. She's in the wilderness. Y'all, once again, uh, you know, a woman alone, pregnant, in the wilderness. This is not a good situation. And as she's at that well, she needs the water, but she's possibly there waiting for someone to come by to help her because without help, she's not gonna make it. Problem is, you know, in that day, the help that came to that well is probably gonna be male and they're probably not gonna have her best interest in mind. That's, that's a fact of that day. And so she is in a tremendously vulnerable place. The angel of the Lord calls her by name, Hagar. You notice when Abram and Sarai referred to her. They never mention her name. My servant, your servant, take my servant. Never gets called by her name. But the Lord calls her by name. 
He asked her a question. What does that remind us of when God asks a question that he already knows? Genesis 3, remember that in the fall? So we're back in the fall. You see how it keeps us in the fall and in that context? You know, where are you, Adam? And of course he knew where they were. Well, he asked her, you know, where are you coming from and where are you going? She says, I'm fleeing my mistress, Sarai. That's all, that, that's all, she, I, I'm, I'm fleeing my mistress, Sarah. She didn't speak about her future. I'll talk about that in a moment. He says, return and submit to her out. I mean, that is that, you know, it's almost like that's not very sensitive to her situation. Well, he's not done speaking. He goes on and says, and he makes a promise to Hagar. You all no, no woman in our Bible gets this a promise like this. I'm gonna make a multitude from you. She says, you're gonna have a son, you're gonna name him Ishmael. That name Ishmael means God hears. God hears. Just kind of put yourself, think about this. When, when, so when Ishmael is being raised, every time she says, Ishmael! Or Ishmael, come here. Ishmael, every time she says it, it's like her saying, God hears, God hears, God hears, come here. God hears, dinner's ready. Can you imagine, can you imagine if you're Sarah and Abram and that message just echoes through your tents? God hears. Hagar also does something that we find nowhere else in the Bible. She names God, names God. She calls him El-Rohi, the God who sees me. She names God. And the well becomes, it, it gets a name because of her experience there. Ber Lahai Rohi, the well, the well of the living one who sees me. So he's going to the well of the living one who sees me. She, she, the, the well itself is named, shows up later in the story. What does all this have to do for us getting ready for the Christmas story? Well, God indeed has showed up here in a nowhere place to a nowhere person. I'm gonna offer five thoughts for you to consider that the story tells us about God and our walk with him. The first one is this, there is no wilderness where God cannot find you. I don't know where you're at today, uh, I do know there will be wildernesses in your life. You, you don't get through this life without them. You're either going in one or coming out of one usually. But I want you to know there is no wilderness where God cannot find you. It doesn't exist. Just write down Psalm 139. It doesn't exist. He'll find you. Second, God sees you hears you, knows your name, where you've been, and where you're going. God sees you, hears you, knows your name, where you've been, and where you are going. I'm fleeing from my mistress. Well, that's where you've been. But she says nothing about, and I'm going. Why does she not speak of her future? Think about it. It's not a trick question. She doesn't have one. She has no future. I mean, surely she's hoping I survive the desert. 
I want you to think about Hagar. Talk about a nobody person. She has been given at a, I don't know what age, probably a young age, she was given to foreigners as property. Probably when Abram was in Egypt earlier and the, you know, the king of Egypt gave him stuff. And here, take, take her. She'll, take, she'll be the maidservant to your wife. She's property. She was taken from her home and her family. Any dreams that she had for her life, they, they were, they, she has none now. They, she can't have any because she's at the whim of others. She's carrying a child not by her own choosing. She's been mistreated by those that she's been entrusted to for care. My goodness. How does one how does one escape that black hole? How does one escape that for, for life? You don't. You can't. She's running. That's what, what, what we normally do is we flee. We what? Scheme. We take control. We do the best we can. Ultimately, the Bible makes clear the only quote escape is for God to intervene and God himself to redeem. And he does that which we cannot escape from. And she comes to understand God sees her. God hears her. God knows her name. God knows where she's been and God knows where he is taking her. She came to understand that here. Which takes us to the third point I want to offer to you. Sometimes you can't see God's future from the tents of plenty, but only in the waste of the wilderness. The tents of plenty. Abram Abram was wealthy. Sometimes you can't see God's future from the tents of plenty, but only in the waste of the wilderness. I don't understand why, you know, God couldn't have just taken... Hagar, while she's weeping one night in her tent maybe, and said to her, let me tell you what I'm gonna do. It's all gonna be okay. Why did she have to go to the wilderness for him to say this? I don't know, but I do know when I read my Bible, my goodness, it seems that God's always putting his people in the wilderness, and I know he doesn't do it out of hate or harm. Surely he does it for our good, and surely it's only in the wilderness that often we're able to see what we need to see. We can't see it in the tent of plenty, but oh my, in the waste of wilderness. I'd say this, in the Bible, the wilderness is a spiritual greenhouse and the tents of plenty are spiritual deserts. That's the way the Bible sees life. There's a fourth thing I wanna offer to you and that is the promise of God did not remove Hagar from the difficulty of submitting to Sarai. It's not like he said, I'm gonna promise this to you and it's all gonna be fine. Just keep going, go back home and we'll do this. No, he said, go back and submit to Sarai. I wanna ask you, reading between the lines, do you believe after she's been treated this way, what do you think Sarai's response is gonna be when Hagar shows back up plump with child of Abram? Is it gonna be like, man, I'm glad you came back. You know, let's eat, let's go. We're glad you're here. I don't think so. I don't think so. And yet God said, go back there and she's surely gonna suffer mistreatment. And so here's what's going on in the story. Hagar was living with two people who had the promise of God, but were having trouble trusting it. 
But now, Hagar has the promise of God. And the question is, will she trust it? See that? Now she must trust the promise of God and go back and submit herself to Sarai. And she does. You see the story. She has the baby. He's named Ishmael. The promise of God did not remove from Hagar the difficulty of submitting to Sarai. And then this last one, if I may offer it, living by the promises of God is the most difficult life to live, but it is the only life worth living. Living by the promises of God is the most difficult life to live, but it is the only life worth living because the only life worth living, according to our Bibles, is life with God and therefore life that lasts forever. So anything less than that, quite frankly, is not, is true. It's not a life worth living. Now, if you don't believe, if, for someone who doesn't believe that there's more to this life, I totally get this. Then I would suggest, and the Bible even says this in, in Ecclesiastes, then, then, uh, then live your life and do what you want. And when bad things happen, do everything you can to eliminate them and work your tail off to make your life as fun and pleasant and pleasurable. I, I totally get that. That makes so much sense if this life is all there is. But we believe this life is not all there is. There is a life to come. And it is a life that is the fulfillment of all we were made for forever. It doesn't diminish this life. It enhances even this life. But this isn't it. And the reason we know this isn't it is because the Bible tells us so. And we're going to celebrate a birthday on the 25th of December that says, God says, there's more to this life than living, breathing, and dying Life is made to be lived in relationship with me and here is my son who will die on the cross for your sins. Be buried and rise again in three days. Christmas, the birth of Jesus, is God saying so loud and tangibly, I see you. I hear you. I know where you're coming from and I know where I'm taking you I know your name living by promise I've put it in a statement in this way every why would we live by promise because every predicament in life has a shelf life God's promises do not every predicament in life and we all live in predicaments in life every predicament in life has a shelf life God's promises do not forever. I'm gonna invite the worship team out and we're gonna respond this morning the song we're gonna learn that speaks of the gospel. And as they're getting ready, I wanna just invite you to consider Hagar's life in this nowhere place, this nobody person and the lessons that she shows us about life with God. There is no wilderness, you, he can't find you. He sees you, he knows your name. He hears you, he knows where you've been, where you're going. You gotta get in the wilderness sometimes to see the future. Living by promise doesn't mean you're not gonna struggle. And living by the promises of God is the most fulfilling life there is. Now, I want to invite you to stand. If you look up here, and it's harder on this side, but you notice we've got the Advent wreath, the anticipation. 
But do you also notice what's back here on the stage? What's here? If, if you can't see it in the back, you can up front, you see what this is? It's the Lord's table. The promise, the reality. Now, we take the Lord's table regularly. But in this Advent season, we're not going to take it. We're going to sit in Advent. And we're going to trust the promise. And build the anticipation that when we take it once again, it's what we've been longing for our whole lives. While we may not take the table, we want to sing about it and all that it holds. Let's lift our voices in that way.